Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Most of us have heard the story of Martin Luther bravely nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church and in turn causing a chain of events that would lead to the breaking of the Catholic Church and what would become the Protestant Reformation. But what happened before and after that to cause such a monumental shift from the medieval world to the modern one? Carlos Eyre, professor of history and religious studies at Yale and author of Reformations, The Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650, joins me today. Carlos, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on this podcast, Mike. Thank you. So first of all, did Martin Luther really nail his 95 Theses to the uh, church door? That's an old legend that uh, hardly anyone uh, backs up anymore. It's something of a joke or a pun when someone suggested that, no, instead he had, he had mailed the theses. Mm-hmm. So the joke goes something like, whether he mailed them or nailed them makes no difference, he posted them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was a, for academic discussion, uh-huh. the 95 theses. That's why it's uh, thought to be very unlikely that he simply nailed them to the, to the door. So was that, was that sort of a, a legend that was built uh, during his time in order to sort of give a little more heft to this, or is this something we later kind of constructed? Uh, it's, it's pretty old. It goes back to the 16th century. Uh, there are many legends about Luther that uh, became, quote-unquote, facts for many generations mm-hmm. and were not uh, actually seriously challenged till the 20th century. The other uh, probably best-known one is the, the inkwell he supposedly threw at the devil. <laughs> when he was hiding at the Wartburg Castle. Mm-hmm. And for generations, uh, pilgrims, Lutheran pilgrims, uh, would visit the castle, go to his room, and see the ink spot on the wall where he had supposedly hurled the ink pot. And they would scratch off flakes of the paint. And the ink blot had to be uh, renewed oh, per- periodically. No. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, uh, although he uh, Luther had actually wrote and spoke about many encounters he had with the devil, mm-hmm. but none of them uh, involved this this ink, ink pot throwing. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it's not the real one. Right, it's, it's like that old. If you replace the broom handle and then the bristles, is it the same broom or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so obviously, a lot uh, happened before the ninety-five theses. Um, and obviously after as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what sort of briefly led to this moment in 1517? Well, there were, uh, let's say, seismic shocks that, that point us to uh, events and people and situations centuries before. And as a matter of fact, almost exactly a century before, 1415, uh, John Huss, uh, in Bohemia, had uh, started a, a movement that followed a previous movement. Mm-hmm. Late 14th century England, John Wycliffe and the Lollards made some of the very same arguments uh, as Luther would later make. Mm-hmm. But in 1415, uh, John Huss was burned as a heretic at the Council of Constance. And Bohemia is not that far from Wittenberg, Germany. It's just a short ride down the Elbe River, mm-hmm. which was back then the easiest way to travel. 
And uh, the Hussites, the followers of John Huss, uh, had not been wiped out completely. The, there was a lot of corruption in the church, but there had always been corruption uh, since the time of Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. I think what's most important to keep in mind about what led up to Luther is an increase in the number of educated people, mm-hmm. an increase in literacy. The invention of the printing press, 1450, is, is crucial. One of the reasons that John Huss's followers remained contained in Bohemia was uh, communication. Mm-hmm. The printing press uh, comes into play at about 1450, and it takes two generations to Luther's day for the printing press to become uh, a communication medium that can reach thousands of people instantly. And I think that's one of the main differences between someone like Huss a century before mm-hmm. who complained about church reform and Luther, who had very similar complaints. But Luther could instantly reach a wide... His 95 Theses, for instance, were printed not just in Latin, in the original Latin, but were very, very quickly translated into German mm-hmm. and became bestsellers. And was there any attempt... Um, to sort of, I, I'm, I'm guessing there were. So what sort of attempts were made to try to stop the, the spread of this sort of heretical information, I guess? Well, um, the Catholic authorities, uh, I'm speaking about the church only, not state, not mm-hmm. secular authorities. The church authorities were very slow mm-hmm. to catch on to this. Um, church authorities were used to heretics and heresy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a fairly, uh, they, they thought they had a fairly routine way of handling people like Luther, which was to corner them theologically at a very abstract and elite level, corner them theologically and declare them a heretic, and then the state would step in mm-hmm. and lay hands on the heretic. So the early response to Luther from the Catholic Church was very learned. Uh, learned theologians took him on. Mm-hmm. They had a couple of debates where it was quite obvious to everyone that Luther was saying things that were, in fact, heretical. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the Leipzig debate, he's cornered by a Catholic theologian who says, sounds to me like uh, what you're saying is very similar to Huss, John Huss. And Luther said, well, Huss was a great man. <laughs> they had him. They had him. Mm-hmm. But what changed what kind of made their attack on Luther pointless was the fact that secular authorities came to Luther's rescue. Hmm. Uh, His prince, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, was very proud of his new university, the University of Wittenberg. And all of a sudden, he's got this professor, uh, not not of the highest rank, but a professor who has become so well-known and has brought attention to his university at Wittenberg. And it's unclear uh, to what extent Frederick the Wise was moved by Luther's theological uh, challenge to Catholic authority, but he was definitely moved by Luther, the man, the hero. Mm -hmm. And Frederick protected Luther. And the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, could not get to Luther because 
the Holy Roman Empire, as the joke goes, was neither holy nor Roman <laughs> nor an empire. Right. It was a very loose collection of states. Right. And the individual states had a lot of independence. Mm-hmm. So the emperor, Charles V, could not get Frederick to bring Luther to court. As a matter of fact, Frederick hid Luther at that castle at the Wartburg mm-hmm. where the, the, the inkpot incident happened. That was Frederick's doing because hmm. uh, the emperor had actually declared Luther an outlaw in 1521. And being an outlaw in the empire meant that anyone could grab you and kill you with impunity. Didn't even have to hmm. go to trial. You could kill Luther on the spot. Hmm. But Frederick hid him in a, in a castle for several months until things uh, improved for Luther to the point that he could come out of hiding safely because it wasn't at that point in 1522 just Frederick who was protecting him. He had a huge following. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's sort of maybe shocking that for such a controversial figure, Martin Luther ends up dying uh, of an illness in bed at what, the age of 63? Early 60s, yeah. yeah. So you would almost expect uh, a much more, uh, I guess... He came damn close. Yeah. Uh, I mean, being proclaimed an outlaw mm-hmm. of the empire under other circumstances with a, a less sympathetic prince would have cost him his life. As a matter of fact, Frederick's cousin, Duke George uh, of another part of Saxony, mm-hmm. the other two Saxonies, the other Saxony, mm-hmm. Duke George was uh, totally opposed to Luther and hell bent on capturing him and undoing the whole Lutheran project. So does he eventually, is he eventually able to come out of hiding and sort of go about a a normal semblance of life? Or is he always sort of on the run, bouncing from from protector to protector? No, he he did not have to run. Uh He went right back to the university, Mm -hmm. uh, 1522, early 1522. And by 1525, he was married mm-hmm. to a former nun, had children, had a family, lived with students, uh, dined with students, corresponded uh, with anyone that he wanted to correspond with, and became increasingly famous. And by the 1530s, it's not just much of northern Germany but all of Scandinavia Mm -hmm. that has gone Lutheran. Mm -hmm. And by then, by the 1530s, also down south in Switzerland, in the Swiss Federation, uh, there are other Protestants, other heretics, as as the church would would look at them. And there's no stopping them. Mm -hmm. There's no turning back the clock. And by then these Catholic elites, the theologians who had been trying to corner Luther and trying to corner the other uh, heretics, uh, couldn't do anything. Hmm. And they were not very good at reaching the common people through print in the same way that Mm -hmm. Luther's followers had been. So when the Catholic Church realizes they're sort of past the tipping point, what what sort of attempts are they making to to stop this or to to force it back? 
a lot of people are calling for a church council. Mm-hmm. And there are actually a number of, of meetings between Protestants and Catholics and between different Protestants that all end in failure. It becomes very clear that there's no compromise on any side. So uh, the last one of these meetings, actually it's surprising, uh, takes place in 1561 in, in Poissy in France. It's the last attempt to actually reach some kind of reconciliation. By then, it's, it's pretty obvious to everyone that this is not going to work. When the Catholic Church finally gets its act together, calls a council, 1545, the Council of Trent will meet on and off until 1563. It's a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they do issue a lot of uh, uh, decrees that call for reform mm-hmm. of many things. But on all of the theological issues, there is no concession made whatsoever <laughs> to Lutheran theology or to the Swiss uh, theology. There's one item where the council came very, very close to giving in, but just on one point, clerical marriage. The Council of Trent, uh, the the vote was very, very close. And there were many at at the Council of Trent who wanted to allow Catholic priests to marry. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were outvoted by a very, very slim Hmm. margin. Oh, it's interesting because this topic is now oh, yeah. up again. Yes. So, I, you know, it's sort of a, a long, long-standing, unresolved issue in a way. Oh, yeah. And um, it's amazing. Most Catholics don't know mm-hmm. how close <laughs> it came uh, in 1563 <laughs> for, for Catholic priests to be married. But when the Ukrainian church, uh, which was Orthodox, decided to join the Roman Catholic Church. An exception was made for them. Ukrainian Catholic priests have been married uh, for generations. Hmm. And most Catholics don't know that either, (laughs) that the whole celibacy rule really didn't come into play until about the year 1000. Hmm. And this was one of the selling points, many scholars argue, one of the selling points for Luther's message, clerical marriage appealed to a lot of clerics (laughs) who became Luther's followers Hmm. uh, and and got married. Uh, All of the major Protestant reformers married. And within one generation, it became so normal that for a Lutheran cleric or any other kind of Protestant cleric not to be married was viewed as strange, that maybe there was something wrong with this man. So that's in one of those very uh, hidden twists that most people don't know mm-hmm. about. Huh. So, I mean, it's we're starting to get into this point, but what was, I mean, the book is called Reformations, so that sort of alludes to the sort of the counter-reformation. So what was the counter-reformation exactly? Well, the terminology has been in flux since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Actually, the term Reformation the way it was used until recently. It's a Protestant term. Mm -hmm. Uh, It meant 
that there was something wrong with the church and that people came along and reformed it. But the plural reformations has come into play because it's quite obvious to anyone who studies this period who looks from, let's say, a bird's eye perspective. You pull away from the map and you look at all of Western Europe. It's pretty clear and very obvious that there wasn't a reformation, Mm -hmm. that there were several reformations because uh, not everyone agreed with Luther on the other side either. There were deep divisions uh, among those who wanted to break from the Roman Catholic Church. So you end up basically with three major Protestant families, let's call them, Mm -hmm. the Lutherans, Northern Germany, and Scandinavia. The Reformed Protestants, this is what they called themselves. They called themselves the Reformed because they think Luther has not gone far enough. (laughs) Right. And then there are the radicals. And then you can add a fourth, too, the Reformation in England, Mm -hmm. which is directed by the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Very different from the other three. So now you've got four major non-Catholic families of churches. You've also got the Catholic Church left behind by this uh, great upheaval. They begin to reform themselves. Not just the Council of Trent, because this is the, the story about Catholic reform that is, is usually ignored. Individuals who have a, a lot of charisma, personal charisma, and also have the means to reform certain aspects of church life begin to do so way before Luther mm-hmm. and way before the Council of Trent. But the Council of Trent is puts an official stamp on reform. And after 1563, the Catholic Church begins to clean up a lot of the abuses uh, that had been brought up by Luther and other reformers. Uh, for instance, bishops who never ever visited their diocese, absentee bishops, (laughs) bishops who held multiple offices, uh, church offices that were for sale, something that was illegal but happened all the time, nepotism. Uh, For instance, there are several popes who had uh, illegitimate children, usually referred to as nephews. who rose to positions of great power and authority in the church. Mm -hmm. All of this is is swept clean by the Council of Trent. So back to your question about the term counter-reformation. That was a term invented in the 19th century by German Protestant historians. Hmm. Uh, Gegenreformation was the term. Counter-reformation really goes against the Reformation. So the assumption was there was a real Reformation, and then the Catholics responded by denying everything (laughs) that the Protestants had been claiming. So it was a Mm counter-Reformation. The term has fallen into disuse, but it's not an altogether uh, incorrect term. There are many things the Catholic did as a response Mm -hmm. to 
Protestantism that were, in fact, counter-Reformation. But there's also a lot of positive Reformation that goes along with that. So by now, 2017 is fairly well accepted in scholarly circles, maybe not so much in popular circles, but in scholarly circles it's, it's pretty well accepted that there were several reformations happening simultaneously mm-hmm. and that although their beliefs differed, their theology was different, the ritual was different, their attitude to symbols was different, they were all in common interested in pursuing a similar goal, which was to do away with aspects of life that they considered wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what were those aspects of life? Well, everything related to daily life, uh, ethics, business, worship, piety, making sure that whatever ideals a church had were not too far from reality. Another, another way of saying that is making the ideal as real as possible. Hmm. So you have, for instance, uh, Catholic Church, back to the marriage thing. You've got married clergy among the Protestants, and you have unmarried clergy among Catholics. Well, both sides are very interested in having clergy who follow whatever rules are set up. So the Protestant clergy are married, and they're not supposed to have mistresses. (laughs) (laughs) They're not supposed to have illegitimate children. Mm -hmm. Catholic uh, Church, the priests are supposed to be celibate. Well, they're not supposed to have mistresses either (laughs) or have illegitimate children. Mm -hmm. And then this kind of trickles down from the top. Uh, Several studies have shown that the number of illegitimate births in Europe in general decreases as a result of the reformations, right? The decrease in illegitimate children can be found in Catholic and Protestant. (laughs) Uh, An attack, for instance, a kind of common attack on on vice, uh, prostitution, both Protestants and, and Catholics are very interested in, in handling this problem. Mm-hmm. They take different approaches to it, but they try to do something about flagrant open prostitution. They try to control it in some way. Mm-hmm. In some places, it's outlawed altogether, and others not. Charity for the poor, um, it, it's quite obvious, anyone who looks at it. It doesn't matter if you're Protestant or Catholic at this point. All these churches, despite all their theological differences, are very interested in streamlining welfare, streamlining how the poor are handled, making sure that uh, there's an equitable and efficient way of distributing goods, housing, what we might call social services, Mm -hmm. uh, to those at the very bottom who can't help themselves. And the theology might differ, but the effect to reform society and not have people wandering the streets begging is something that all of these reformers, whether Catholic or Protestant, 
want to do away with and handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, a bit of a change in in gears, maybe. But uh, obviously, at, during all this, the Thirty Years' War happens. How much of the Thirty Years' War was religiously motivated, and how much of it do you think was maybe motivated by secular concerns that maybe were disguised as uh, religious conflict? Well, it's impossible to separate religion and politics in this time, mm-hmm. the way that we separate them now. Um, totally impossible. And um, the Thirty Years' War, which begins in 1618, almost exactly 100 years after Luther and his 95 Theses, is a religious war. Mm-hmm. And initially, the, the way that the different European powers line up, it's Protestant versus Catholic. But of course, that also means uh, instantaneously uh, you have different states going to war against each other. Mm-hmm. Happen to have different religious confessions. By the end of the war, 30 years later, the, the sides have constantly changed. If one looks at a, a graph or a chart of the different states that took part in the 30 years war over time, over the 30 years, it's a very complicated chart, <laughs> especially because people who switch sides and so on. But for the <laughs> most part, it is the last of the great religious wars mm-hmm. that even at the very end, 1648, can still be called uh, uh, religious in nature. The fact that it began in Prague uh, has a lot to do with the fact that the Holy Roman Emperor was being challenged. Mm -hmm. And those that were doing the challenging were Protestants, and the Holy Roman Emperor was Catholic. But from there on in, um, religion never left the scene. And, And here's one item, something visual caught my eye that forever changed the way I think about the Thirty Years' War. One of the heroes of the Thirty Years' War on the Protestant side was King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden. Mm-hmm. When he was killed uh, during, during the fighting, his body, his corpse, w- was sent back to Sweden. But they stopped in Wittenberg, Luther's city, on the way there. And at the very same church in Wittenberg where Luther is buried, on the other side of the aisle, there's a spot marked on the floor where Gustavus Adolphus's casket was laid for a day or so huh. on his way back to Sweden. Yeah. So they had to honor his presence in Wittenberg. Even though he was only there dead <laughs> right. and just for a day or two. Right. They, they had to mark the spot, and uh-huh. it's very prominently marked, huh. almost as prominently marked uh, as Luther's <laughs> burial place. <laughs> so separating religion and politics uh, does, just doesn't work for the 16th and 17th mm-hmm. century. Um, so what role did religion uh, and these reformations play in the exploration that was happening during the Age of Discovery, which is also happening at this point? Yeah, initially, you know, all the uh, discoveries were taking place before Luther came along. Mm -hmm. And just by 
set of special circumstances. Initially, it was Spain and Portugal who were involved in sailing around Portugal, sailing around Africa, going to Asia, mm-hmm. and Spain going west to the so-called New World. So initially, it has nothing to do with what's happening in Europe. It's not until England in the late 16th century becomes involved in sailing across the Atlantic and trying to establish colonies in North America, which technically belonged to Spain. (laughs) (laughs) Just a technicality. Yeah, just a small (laughs) technicality. Uh, Charles V, that same emperor who condemned Martin Luther as an outlaw, Charles V laid claim to both Americas, Hmm. North and South America. Mm -hmm. So technically, yeah, it was theirs. But it's not till the English, um, who have their own problems at home with religion, come across the ocean that we, we get kind of a postscript to the Reformations, now a transatlantic postscript. Because what happens in the English colonies is very interesting. The religious divisions in England are replicated in the colonies. So... In Virginia, for instance, you end up with the Church of England being established as as the church of that colony, mm-hmm. whereas here in New England, uh, it's the Puritans mm-hmm. who don't like the Anglican Church, <laughs> who want to – some of them want to reform the Anglican Church. Some of them, the pilgrims uh, are the best example. Uh, they, they don't want to reform the Anglican Church. They want to leave the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. They think it's too corrupt to mm-hmm. establish their own church, so they come and do that here. And it's the principal reason that the country that would emerge, the United States, has uh, protection, freedom of religion, mm-hmm. as one of one of the basic rights, has everything to do. It dates back to divisions in England that were brought to the colonies, so that if you went up and down the East Coast, you would find all sorts of different churches including uh, the church the Dutch brought to to the Hudson Valley, mm-hmm. the Reformed Church. Mm-hmm. The uh, Reformed Protestants who were escaping persecution in France who came here, the Huguenots. Mm-hmm. Uh, radical Protestants uh, who, who also came to America. Uh, by 1776, when the Revolutionary War begins, the 13 colonies have a plurality of churches. Uh, so to establish a new country, you have to have some kind of system of dealing with this plurality and hence freedom of religion. Hmm. So that's the Reformation side of things. On the Catholic side, you have missions. Uh, Catholics uh, send missionaries everywhere that these Catholic countries go, especially Spain and Portugal. But then France gets involved too in, in, in North America in Quebec, uh, they send missionaries too. And the story of Catholic missions in this period is also the story of the expansion of Europe, which has to be viewed as a two-way street. There's much that Europeans bring to other places, but there's much that the missionaries bring back to Europe, especially the missionaries who go to Asia. I mean, contact between Europe and Asia 
which is established in the 16th century through missions mm-hmm. at first, uh, is immensely significant. And later, well, I shouldn't say later, almost immediately, it becomes inseparable from colonialism, imperialism, so that um, that's another aspect of reformations Mm -hmm. that needs to be taken into account. Um, Protestants don't start missions on the same scale until the 18th and 19th century. Hmm. Obviously, you know, there's a lot to take in here, mm-hmm. um, but just uh, maybe briefly, what are what are some of the bigger effects that we're still feeling today from this as far as, you know, family life, uh, economy, theology, obviously? Um, what are some of the big ticket items that are that are still with us? Well, I think the biggest ticket of all um, we've already touched upon, which is... Uh, Diversity and plurality in religion. Mm-hmm. Religion ceased to be monolithic mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, before Luther comes along, yeah, you've had people who stirred up trouble like John Huss and John Wycliffe and many others, but they were always contained. There were a lot of divisions within Western European uh, culture and Western European religion before Luther came along. But after Luther comes along and, and kind of um, sets off his, I, I like to view it as a, a fire, like a forest fire. It just consumes whole portions of the map mm-hmm. that are no longer Catholic. And as others come along and you get other forest fires mm-hmm. and the map becomes increasingly more complex the areas that, let's say, are burned over that are no longer Catholic, and the new growth comes in. The map is completely changed. And you've got Catholics and Protestants living in close proximity to each other, sometimes in the same city. And getting along becomes a, a problem. <laughs> right. So conducting business as usual requires toleration. There are scholars who debate this issue. Present-day toleration, is it due to thinkers who came up with theories of toleration, or did toleration just naturally emerge from business as usual? <laughs> which I'll, came first? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a chicken and egg yeah. sort of question, right? <laughs> I, I'm on the side that likes to argue that toleration uh, was just a natural outgrowth of religious diversity. Mm -hmm. And when you think about this fact that up until the 16th century, everyone born in Western Christian Europe had to be baptized into the same church, Mm -hmm. except for Jews. Who, uh, where they had not been expelled, and if they still there were still Jews there, they were exempt. They didn't have to be baptized, but everybody else had to be baptized into the same church. <laughs> then along come the radicals in the 16th century who don't agree with Luther and don't agree with the Swiss, and say, "Wait a minute! You don't baptize infants. You only baptize believers, yeah, adults, so on." So that begins to unravel the the whole system of 
religion being required of you, mm-hmm. which used to be a law. I mean, you could be punished. And as a matter of fact, a lot of these early radicals were, were killed for not baptizing their children. So our religious diversity in the modern world uh, is, the, as I said, the biggest ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, an increase uh, in what we might call secularism mm-hmm. is also the heritage of the Reformations. When there are so many religious divisions, the whole idea that there is uh, one truth, a monolithic truth, that everyone has to agree on, goes out the window. And along with that um, goes religion too Mm -hmm. as a very special area of life. It becomes more of a private area of life. But in addition to that, there's something about Protestant theology, Protestant beliefs, that makes... The, the former understanding of reality, very different. Because one of the chief points Protestants like to emphasize is that the division between spiritual and material that the Catholic Church had held for millennium and a half was incorrect that in fact uh, material points of contact with the divine are useless. (laughs) So for instance, believing that Christ is present in the bread of communion. To most uh, 21st century college students, it's inconceivable to them Mm -hmm. that anyone would seriously disagree about whether or not Christ is present in the bread, mm-hmm. or that anyone would be willing to die for such a belief. But people did in mm-hmm. the 16th century yeah, die for that belief, whether it was positive or negative. They died both both ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's here. No, he's not here. People died for both of those hmm. beliefs. But separating spiritual from material and claiming, as most Protestants did back then, that miracles just didn't happen anymore, that miracles stopped in the first century. Yes, in the Gospels and the entire New Testament, you have all these miracle accounts and the Jesus' apostles are performing all sorts of miracles. But Protestants, almost all Protestants, not all, but almost all agreed that those kinds of miracles could not happen anymore. So religion becomes very different for Protestants. Religion is not about, for instance, uh, going on a pilgrimage to a shrine and begging some saint to intercede with God for you to cure your goiter Mm -hmm. or whatever medical problem Mm -hmm. you might have. That's not what religion is about. Religion is basically about ethics, about your behavior not about seeking special help from heaven or the spiritual side of things through material points of contact like relics or images. And the whole idea of anyone becoming holy or a saint changes completely for Protestants. Anyone who's regarded uh, as special, as spiritual in Protestantism, 
is not a miracle worker. They don't heal others. They don't read people's minds. <laughs> they, uh, they don't levitate. <laughs> right. They don't bilocate. They don't end up in two places at the same time. This, Catholics actually begin to emphasize all that mm-hmm. at this time. But uh, my point is, you take that from the Protestant side, it doesn't matter that Catholics are still doing their, their old stuff and actually emphasizing the, their old beliefs on spiritual material relations. Skepticism, right? Skepticism about the miraculous, about the way in which God deals with the world grows and grows and grows. And then it's joined, uh, joined that with the emerging new science and skepticism uh, about religion in general begins to grow. And the more that the religious divisions uh, persist and the more troublesome that they seem to some intellectuals, 30 years war back to that, for Mm -hmm. instance, all the killing. There are areas of Germany that lost half of their population due to the 30 years Hmm. war. So by the time you get to the 18th century, you have many intellectuals who view religion not as a positive thing, but as a negative thing because of the divisions it causes and the violence that it engenders. And to some extent, we in the West are now living through something similar because there's a religion that's perceived as hostile to our ideals of diversity and religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And we, we face the same problem that European Christians faced five, four, three, two centuries ago uh, about relations with each other. I used to make fun of John Locke, English thinker, who wrote a treatise on toleration, arguing that everyone should be tolerated except for Catholics. (laughs) But his point was you can't tolerate intolerant people, and that was the perception he had of hmm. Catholics, that they were intolerant. Hmm. So actually, tolerance is now one of the chief values of Western civilization. And it doesn't matter whether people believe in God or not. Uh, believing in tolerance is basically required of all Westerners. <laughs> it is required. <laughs> right. If you don't believe in tolerance and if you're intolerant, you're out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's become the equivalent of a religious belief. That comes from the Reformations. Well, Carlos, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Obviously, there's a lot more here, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, The book is Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650, and it's available wherever books are sold. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Talk to you next time.